Church, have you ever had a day, or maybe more than one, where you can barely get out of bed for sorrow? Where it seems like there is nothing and nobody that could make the pain or the loss worth enduring even one more day? Have you ever had so much destroyed in your life or taken from you that even the thought of starting over again brings you to tears? And you know in the depths of your heart that if there is a God, then he must really hate you in particular. I've personally never had to endure a day like that myself. And because I haven't, I feel this morning wholly unqualified to preach a sermon about lament to people listening who I know at least a few of you have felt that very thing this morning. You have had those days. And though I don't understand that kind of loss or bereavement that the verses that we're going to read about this morning speaks of, friends, God does understand. And so this morning, these are not the words of Ryan Schreckengast. These are the words of a God who understands the suffering that you have endured. He knows the kind of loss that you have felt. The loss that is recorded in this book of Lamentations was written on behalf of the people of Israel when their entire nation was devastated and their people went into exile in Babylon. Why? As judgment for their sin. And friends, that is the unavoidable consequences of sin. And although I have not experienced the level of suffering and loss that we will read about in Lamentations, I have experienced the foulness of my own sin. I know what that means. I know how dark that can be. And so this morning, this sermon is for me. And it's for you who have lost more than you think you could possibly bear. It's for you who have not lost quite so much, but you recognize the truth that your sin deserves the kind of destruction that we are going to read about this morning. And it is for all of us who need a place to cling to, both now in our earthly loss, And in the final judgment when we face a holy God. Because that's the question, isn't it? When you have lost so much that nothing seems to matter. To what? To who? Could you possibly cling to? And so I hope this morning that you will see in your affliction. In all cases. Your hope now And forever comes from clinging with all your strength and soul to Christ. So our outline this morning is that when the Lord takes away 
your strength and your security, your victory over your enemies, and even his own voice. You could respond in mourning, in mockery, or in supplication. But your only hope is found in clinging to Christ. That's where we're going this morning. So let's start by reading Lamentations 2, verses 1 through 9, which is on page 642, if you have one of the church Bibles. And we'll see all of the many things that the Lord God is willing to take away for the sake of sin. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its places. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden. Laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Here Israel provides a litany of the things that God has taken from them. Every one of these verses begins with Yahweh as the subject. Verse 1, the Lord has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy. Verse 3, he has cut down in fierce anger. And on and on and on. 
So this is not merely, friends, a catalog of what Israel has lost. Although it is that too. It is a catalog of what Yahweh God has taken from them. And that's important. Because look at the things that God has taken away. This morning I see three major categories of loss in this text. The first is the loss of Israel's strength and her security. In verses 2, 3, 8, and 9, Israel cries out that God has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has cut down all the might of Israel. He has caused their ramparts and their wall to languish together. God has taken away the strength and the security that Israel once had. Their walls are broken down. The second category of things that I think the Lord takes from Israel here is their victory over their enemies. In verses 3, 7, and 9, we see that God has withdrawn from Israel his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. Until finally, we see that even her king and princes are exiled among the nations. But finally, and worst of all, God has withdrawn his voice from Israel. He has withdrawn himself. Verses 6 and 7 outline this most tragic loss. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. He has spurned king and priest. Yahweh has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, delivered his temple to be defiled by enemies. Which culminates in the most unbearable and unthinkable loss in verse 9. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Friends, God has withdrawn himself from Israel. And what, friends, do all three of these things have in common? What does the loss of Israel's strength and security, her victory over her enemies, and the very presence of God himself mean for this people? All of these things, every one, are things that God himself had given to Israel in the past. Israel's whole history was one of God rescuing them, of, of building them up and giving them victory and choosing them as a people that he would set apart for himself to fellowship with in a way no other nation enjoyed. But now, God has taken an active role in destroying and leaving seemingly no remnant of the very things that he created and the things that he gave. Which should leave us, the readers of Lamentations, 
asking two questions. First, why? Why? Why has God done this? And secondly, how will everyone involved respond when he does? So let's look at the next portion of his lament, this lament. And you will see many of the same themes that we have just identified repeated again. But you will also see three responses. Mourning, mocking, and supplication. And in these verses, we will begin to see, in this case, why. Read with me verses 10 through 19. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their head to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? And they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Aha, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. Now we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. In these verses, we see the mourning and the mocking and the supplication that result from God withdrawing his gifts from his people. And we see the beginnings of why. Firstly, there is no shortage of mourning. We see in verses 10 through 14. Sackcloth and tears and bile. 
And friends, let me make it clear that this is not an overreaction on the part of Israel. They're, they're not blowing this out of proportion. The things that the Lord has taken away from them are worth mourning. Dan shared last week that loss isn't about comparing whose loss is greater. This loss, all loss, is worth mourning, friends. Because it is terrible. But we see here the result of God withdrawing what he gave. He gave, he he has taken these things away. And the people of Israel are literally starving. The children are literally dying from hunger. And not even their mothers can give them bread. So it is right to mourn this state of being. To weep. To suffer in compassion with the suffering. It is right for us to do that. And yet, the response of some in this text this morning is not mourning with the suffering, but mockery. In verses 15 and 16, those who pass by heap abuse on the suffering people. They are eager to point out the dejectedness of the people who once had received gifts directly from the hand of God. The favored ones have fallen. And so they gleefully mock. You can just hear the victory in their voice at the words that they speak. This is the day we hoped for. We have swallowed her. We have done this. Look at who they credit for their victory. We have swallowed her. We have longed for it. Now we have it. We see it. Friends, they see this downfall of God's people as nothing more than a fitting fate for those who were once mighty and they have brought low. It's their victory. But that's not how God's people see their own fall themselves. Verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. God purposed this? God commanded this kind of destruction? When? Why? Why? Leviticus 26 records the very beginning when the people of Israel are saved by God from their slavery out of the hand of Egypt. God makes his covenant, his promise with the people of Israel through Moses. And when he does this, The first part of that covenant is a promise that if his people follow his statutes, reject false gods, and keep his Sabbath, then God promises to give Israel victory over her enemies, to give her sanctuary and peace, to provide abundance, and above all, to make his dwelling among them. 
But the second part of that covenant is that if they do not obey God's commandments, but they break his covenant, then God promises to set his face against them. To take away all that he gave. Why? Not friends out of spite. But so that the discipline of the Lord would turn them back toward God. That they could have fellowship with him once again. God vows to sequentially withdraw all of these things that he has given. One by one. So that they would turn to him. This is the word that he commanded long ago. Culminating finally with the fate that Israel now faces. And you shall perish among the nations. And the land of your enemies shall eat you up. Friends, this is the state that Israel is in. This is what they lament. This is what it has come to. Not overnight, but over generations. And now Israel has blown through every one of the stages that God laid out in Leviticus 26. They're at the end. And they know it. They know that their fall isn't simply fate. It isn't even because of the might of their enemies. They know that it is God himself who has done this. Just as he purposed to do long ago. And it is they themselves who receive the cost of the covenant that they broke. In chapter 1 of Lamentations, the people say God was right to have done this. Because it was part of his covenant. And so the third response that we see from this section is supplication. Verse 19, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children. They petition the Lord for the sake of their children. They turn themselves to God. Which is exactly the point. That is the why. Because their only hope has always been, has always been, whether they knew it or not, to cling to the covenant of God. This promised judgment that they are enduring anchors their hope in nothing less than God keeping His covenant. And somehow, Providing salvation despite the brokenness of that covenant at the hand of God's people themselves. Because Leviticus 26, which promised all of those sufferings, concludes like this. Yet for all of that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. So God in his righteousness. 
did for Israel what he promised in his covenant. Because of their rebellion against him, he withdrew from them their strength and their security, their victory over their enemies, and even his own voice. Which resulted in Israel's mourning, their enemies' mockery, and finally in supplication before God. All so that they would turn from their sin and cling to God's covenant. And all of that may seem well and good. It may seem logical, well outlined, and straightforward. Until you are in the midst of that pain. Until your children are starving. Until the sword cuts off the life of the innocent in front of you. And God's voice is nowhere to be heard. And so you are simply overwhelmed with the brokenness all around you. And when that happens, like Israel, you may cry out to God, God, should this be how it is? Should this be? And that, friends, is the question that ties all of this together, that draws all of us, the sinner, the sanctified, the sufferer, and the spared, to the one same hope, to cling to Jesus Christ. Let's read these last verses of Lamentations 2, verses 20 through 22. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them. In the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity, you summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Friends, in these bleak, dark verses we find our only hope is in Christ. Israel asks a rhetorical question in verse 20. With whom have you dealt thus? But the answer was already given to them in Jeremiah 46, which I won't read. But do you know, church, with whom God had already dealt in exactly this same way? Who was it that was delivered into exile by the hands of Babylon? Who was it whose pride and might was brought low into the dust of the streets? Who was it whose people went out into exile? It was Egypt. 
Egypt friends in Jeremiah 46. This is exactly the same thing that God did in judgment of the idolatry of Egypt. Do you see the people of Israel who were rescued from Egypt to be a light to the world have become Egypt. They were chosen, set apart, but they have just become like the worst nation in their own history. What a devastating fall. Their rebellion against God has resulted in exactly the same consequences as was faced by every other sinful nation. With whom has God dealt thus? With everyone. Because of sin. Everyone falls short. Everyone fails to meet God's standard. No, women should not eat the fruit of their womb. No, God's priests should not be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord. No, the young and the old should not die in the dust of the streets. No, the people set apart by God should not rebel against him. No, it's broken. And it's broken, friends, not by God, but by sin. God kept his covenant. His promise to judge mankind's chronic, persistent rebellion against him applies to all nations and all peoples and every single individual. So what hope can we possibly have in a world that is so fundamentally broken at our own hands? To whom can we cling when God is right to judge sin exactly how he promised to? Seems that God either must destroy us utterly as the right penalty for our sin, or he must break his own covenant in order to save us. There is no answer except for Jesus. Jesus, whose eyes were spent with weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, who fainted like a wounded man in the street under the weight of the cross. Jesus, who cried out for thirst, but was given vinegar when he hung upon that cross. Jesus, who was the priest of God, killed in the very city, Jerusalem, meant to be the sanctuary of God. Jesus, from whom God withdrew his presence in the last moments, leaving him to utter in despair, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lamentations 2, 13 says, To what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? You can be compared to Jesus. Jesus. 
What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? You can be comforted by Jesus. Who can heal you? You can be healed by Jesus. Because Jesus paid the full penalty of God's judgment on sin. Friends, because of Jesus, God can still be good and sovereign even when sin has broken so much. He alone is the fulfillment of God's covenant of grace. And so to him alone can we cling to in the midst of our affliction. So church, with that hope in our hearts, how do we apply these verses in Lamentations? I have three things for you this morning. First of all, it is okay to mourn your loss before God. It's okay to mourn. Your pain is real. And it is a real product of the brokenness that sin has brought to this world. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that everything that you suffer must be because of your personal specific sin. Jesus made that principle clear to the man who was healed from blindness. Not because of his sin or his parents' sin, but so that the works of God might be displayed. That's the point. Whether your sin or someone else's sin, the suffering of all sin, its consequences of rebellion against God, all of them are the consequences of sin. And they are all under the same judgment of God. And so only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can that suffering be redeemed. So you don't belittle the sovereignty of God by mourning the destruction around you in this world. You can mourn your failing body. You can weep for the orphans. You can weep for the lives lost to abortion. You can spend your tears until there are none left for the young and the old who have died by violence in the streets. This doesn't reduce the glory of God to mourn this brokenness. Friends, it elevates it. This is why Jesus died. This is what he paid for to redeem and to finally make right. So yes, recognize the sovereignty of God because he is sovereign and he is the one who brings judgment on the sin of the world. But you can also glorify him in your sorrow by looking at Jesus. 
Look at what he paid for. So in that sorrow, cling to Christ. It is okay to mourn your loss before God. Secondly, it is okay to make supplication to the Lord to bring your suffering to an end. It's okay to make supplication. Because of Jesus, the power of sin and death is broken. You are not a slave to it. God can heal you and comfort you and restore your hope. And he wants to do exactly that through his son, Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Here's an example of such a prayer that I think honors God in supplication. Father God, I need you. My wife's health is weak. We hope that she will recover, but God, our hope is not ultimately in any treatment or outcome. Our hope is in you. Father, she is so discouraged. She feels like her own body has become her enemy. She can't do the things that she used to. And it's hard, God, to shoulder the burden for my family. God, give me strength. I need you, Father, to make my heart like yours. I need you, God, to help me love her better than I know how. Help me not to be bitter. God, please heal her body. Please, God, restore her strength. You, God, alone are sovereign. You, God, can work all of this for our good and for your purpose to be glorified. Father, I don't know what your plan is in this, but I ask you, God, to heal her. To not abandon either of us to hopelessness. Jesus, you bore the weight of my sin. Jesus, you paid the price for the death that I deserve. Father God, please restore us. Restore me and my family. That we may serve you in grace and in truth. Church, cling to Christ in the midst of your suffering. And ask God to bring you, ask him to bring you through it to find peace. It is okay to make supplication to the Lord in your suffering. Which brings us to the third and the final application from this text this morning. If you haven't already trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to do all of this. Please trust him. Trust in this Jesus who came to earth specifically to suffer every loss for you. Don't mock him. 
Because he, not you, is the one who judges and the one who raises up and who tears down nations. Jesus Christ is the only one that you can cling to in the midst of your suffering. So repent of the sin that brought you, like all of us, under the judgment of God. And cling to Christ. Reach the end of yourself, just as Israel did. Lament the brokenness of your sin. And call on Jesus for your salvation. Cry out to him, church. Ask that the grace of God will transform you from God's enemy to his child. Cling to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need you, Jesus. God, we need you. Lord, I need you. I need you, God. I need you, God. Lord, there is so much brokenness in this world of which I've only tasted the small part. Lord, you suffer from my sin. God, it hurts you. You want to be with us. You want fellowship, God, with us. And Lord, we've broken it. And so, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that you would come and suffer so much on our behalf. Lord, you know what it is we suffer. Lord, you know the things that we share with no one, that we bury in darkness. Lord, you know the things that we hide. You know the things, Lord, that we dare not say even to our closest friends. God, the death that we encounter every day. You know it, Lord. And you died for it. God, you died for us. But Lord, you didn't leave it there. You rose again, God. You conquered death. And in that victory, Lord, we hold you up. We hold your son up, God. Though Israel raised up their hope and it was destroyed by the enemy, Lord, we raise up your son. We raise Jesus, whom no enemy can defeat. No enemy can tear down, God, your son. So, Lord, we cling to Jesus. Amen.